some kids are never taught how to study and so what they think studying is is you stare at it for a while and if you stare at it long enough well then maybe you'll know it Hello, and welcome to the Arts of Language podcast with Andrew Poudois, founder of the Institute for Excellence in Writing, or as many like to say, IEW. My name is Julie Walker, and I'm honored to serve Andrew and IEW as the Director of Marketing. Our goal here is to equip teachers and teaching parents with methods and materials which will aid them in training their students to become confident and competent communicators and thinkers. Hi everyone, as you may have heard, this week we're switching it up a bit and are playing for you the audio portion of one of our IEW webinars. Today's episode is part two of that webinar, so if it sounds a bit like you're jumping into the middle of a conversation, well, it's because you are. And like we do for each podcast recording, we'll post any links or websites mentioned at IEW.com slash podcast. Enjoy! I do want to shift over though now and talk a little bit about how the brain stores information. And so I worked for three years at the Institutes for the Achievement of Human Potential, which is where I learned and came to understand this very well. And anything we learn, whether it's a sensory information like what our mother's face looks like, to motor information such as how to play a piece of music on the piano, conjugate a Latin verb, do a a layup. So anything that we can sense or do, we can sense or do because we have made neural connections in the brain that allows us to recognize or perform that activity. So everything we do and can do is the result of neural connections. And very few neural connections are established at birth. We have just enough to be able to cry and suck and crawl and start to look around and, and identify certain sounds. But very, very quickly, our magnificent brain starts to make all sorts of connections, multi-sensory inferences that you can figure out. Babies as young as four months old can hear mom's keychain jingle and differentiate that from any other keychain jingle. That, that's how sensitive the brain is, how it can do this through repetition. And so everything we learn is through neural connections. Neurons, axons of one neuron reach out to the dendrites of another, and these they make an electrochemical reaction again and again and again. And if there's then enough frequency, intensity, and duration, those become semi-permanent neural connections, things that we will not forget until the brain cells begin to, to die. So the three variables, the first one is frequency. That would be repetition. So when something happens again and again and again and again, then you make these neural connections, and because of the repetition, they become permanent neural connections. Things we learn through repetition would be, say, for example, multiplication. We drill that. We do it again and again until we know that 6 times 7 is 42, and we don't have to figure it out. We don't have to think about it. We just know 
is 42. It's a fact. It's a permanent neural connection. And so now we can access that fact anytime we need to when doing other math problems or whatnot. But mostly, I think we use repetition for the storage of that. Another variable would be intensity. This is the strength of the stimulation. Anything that has a very strong stimulation will probably make semi-permanent or permanent neural connections. If you try a little thought experiment and go back to third grade, try to think of something that you remember from being in third grade. If you can't, try fourth. The only thing I remember from third grade is, is stapling my finger. But it wasn't stapling my finger that caused it to have such intensity. You could staple your finger and forget about that. What I remember is that my teacher didn't believe that I stapled my finger. And she said, no, no, you just got a paper cut. And I said, no, I stapled my finger. I'm sure of it. And she said, no, I think you just got a paper cut. And so this idea of not being believed by my teacher, that had an intensity that caused that one event to remain in my memory for decades later. So the, the intensity of the thing is another factor. The third factor is duration, right? And that would be the stretching out of frequency over time. Spaced repetition is more effective than crammed repetition. We all know this from having tried to cram for a test in school. We try to get information in our brain and hold it there just long enough to pass a test or get a good grade, and then we promptly let it go, and there isn't much lasting memory of that information. So duration, uh, what's a good example? I think we probably learn things like the parts of government in this way. We we hear it a little bit here, and we hear it a little bit there, and we hear it a few years later, and we kind of hear it a few times over several years. And then we hope that by the time we have to go vote, we know that there's a judicial, an executive, and a legislative branch of the US government. And But I don't, I don't remember learning that, or remembering when I learned that, like I do remember learning six times seven in third grade. So those three variables are ever present. And when those three variable, when one variable is higher, the others can be lower. When one is lower, the others may need to be higher. So if you have something a little bit less interesting, you'll need more repetition and duration. If you have something extremely interesting because the intensity is high or maybe painful, then you would need less repetition to store that information. So how might we apply this to spelling? Well, one of the things to think about right now in the context of teaching spelling, or really anything else for that, is that children are different. They need different levels of repetition. Some children can learn some spelling words or math facts, and they learn it after a few repetition, three, four, five, six, whatever. And other children may need a whole lot more repetition, 15 or 20 times. Now, that doesn't mean that some are smarter than the other. I wouldn't say that's intelligence. I would just say that's part of the aptitude, the neurological learning of the student. 
but it does make it difficult if you're trying to march everybody along at the same speed in the same way. So one of the problems with a workbook, if you buy a spelling workbook, is it has a pre-designed, pre-ordained amount of repetition built into it. That's the nature of the thing. A workbook is kind of an oxymoron. You know, it can't do any work. It can only be what it is. It can't adjust itself for the child. So when you have a child that gets into some kind of workbook and it, it gives the perfect amount of repetition for that child, well, then it's very successful. But sometimes you get a workbook that doesn't give enough repetition and the child doesn't learn. It goes on in complexity or moves on to the next phase. There isn't significant review and then the learning decreases and the dislike of that subject will arise in the child because they don't have a mastery. They're not good at it. On the other hand, you can have a workbook that gives too much repetition. You're like, do I really have to do this again? Come on, I got it. I know this. Can we please move on? So you want to be very careful about really anything you buy from us or anyone. If it has a prescribed amount of repetition, then you have to be sensitive. Is this child getting enough to be successful at the next level of complexity? Or is this a little much for this child and can we move a little faster? So in an ideal circumstance, you would be able to adjust the amount of repetition individually for each child. That's another thing that our phonetic zoo system is designed to do, but that's important. Intensity with spelling would be anytime you have some kind of mnemonic device. So if you've remembered the thing I before E except after C, and so you're writing a word and you go, okay, no C, so it's I before E, oops, there's a C, as in receives, so it's got to be the reverse, E-I. But then, of course, the problem with English is even that rule isn't consistent 100% of the time, and you have to learn the exceptions to the rule, like weird and sees. Right? So you have to, you know, it's just more complex. But any kind of mnemonic device, I'll give you another example. I run around the country and teach writing classes. Very often, we'll teach an Aesop fable to the elementary group and, and we'll do synonyms for said. And I'll be writing these synonyms for said on the board and I'll say, okay, what are some possibilities? The kids will get screamed, shouted, whispered, asked, answered. If you go long enough, you usually get the word laughed. Now I always stop and I say, okay guys, now if you want to try to write laugh, don't try to write laughed because you'll probably write L-A-F-T because that makes perfect sense. Instead, try to write la-ugaha-ed. La-ugaha-ed. And of course, everyone cracks up. and La-ugaha-ed. That's crazy. It is crazy. It's, it has a little absurdity to it. But that's actually how you spell the word laughed. La-ugaha-ed. So I've had kids with a repetition of two times in one class go home and say, hey, dad, that writing teacher was really funny. And he said, if you want to write laugh, don't write laugh, write la-ugaha-ed. And from thence on, when they try to write the word laugh, they'll try to write and and so that can be very helpful if you have a mnemonic device. Any way you can connect something that has some intensity, some humor, maybe some pain, that should reduce the amount of frequency you need on learning something like that. Duration, I think, for spelling, it just translates to patience. You can't expect people to learn spelling and do it perfectly because when you're writing, you have the problem 
of doing too many things all at once. Some of those things. For one, if you're trying to write something, you're trying to put words into sentences that make sense and sentences into a logical order. That's a language function of the brain. Then, of course, you're trying to spell the words that you want to write. And then on top of that, you're trying to remember how to make the letters to spell the word that you want to write, uh, or you know maybe cursive the letters that you are trying to use to spell the words that you want to write. So what happens to a lot of kids is they may be able to spell a word on demand, right, verbally or, or just in isolation. But then they're writing something, and they're over in the language part of their brain. And to really be able to get that word, they're going to have to stop thinking about the language go up out of the language part of the brain all the way over to the spelling part of the brain, search around, almost like they used to do on a hard drive or a floppy drive, find the spelling word in that database of spelling words, pick it up, carry it all the way over back to the language part of the brain, and by the time kids have done that, they forgot the sentence they were trying to write or what they wanted to do with that word or anything, and they have to go back and reconstruct that. So a lot of children, very wisely, as probably you or I would do, is sacrifice the spelling for the train of thought. So what I recommend is you give kids word lists, you work with keyword outlines, and then you be present. And if they say, how do you spell a word, you just spell it for them and be their human dictionary. Or if you can't, say, you know what, just give it your best guess. Keep writing your sentence, and then we'll go you know, figure that out later. Because I'm not into inventive spelling. I want correct spelling. But I don't want to burden the child by saying you have to Think of content, put it into words, put those words in a sentence, spell everything, and by the way, have neat handwriting all at the same time. When you do that for young children, you can fry their little brain and they start to hate everything which you, you do not want. So a little bit there on frequency, intensity, and duration. So there's two approaches to teaching spelling. One would be a visual approach. And so here, this little sample, I'm assuming we got it from something off a how to teach spelling on a website or something, because we would never promote this. It's got all sorts of possible correct answers, and you're supposed to circle the correct one. Th this can almost be harmful to a child, because it's, it's not only confusing them, it could be giving them wrong information. So we would probably not recommend this type of approach. And in general, the visual approach works for visually well-organized well kids, whereas our approach works better the auditory approach. You know, the spelling bee is the really the last vestige of the study method that used to be used where it was all verbal and auditory. There was no paper involved. And so our program, the Phonetic Zoo, I'm going to go into and talk about a little bit more detail here in a minute, is indeed much more similar to that traditional and in many cases more effective. And I do agree, Kathleen, you are so absolutely right in your statement that standardized tests do that pick the right one out of the wrong ones or the wrong one out of the right ones. And I would almost call those a form of child abuse because it's not really testing the ability to spell so much as it is favoring children who are visually well organized. And I don't think teachers 100 years ago would have looked at that idea and said, that's at all right. They might not have been able to necessarily define why it's not right. But 
I think right now most school teachers are very interested in being able to find the best possible approach for all the children in their class. Textbook publishers tend to be in favor of selling paper. So we do want to be, you know, a little bit careful on that. And I see some more chats there about this whole problem of, of the paper approach and the standardized test approach. So any case, one thing I would mention before we move on and talk about our excellence in spelling program is that the value of Greek and Latin word roots is tremendous. We don't at this time yet, I would say, have a Greek and Latin word roots program for sale. It's definitely something on the side burner we are looking or thinking about designing the best one we can, but there are some good ones out there. One is called English from the Roots Up. That's been fairly popular in the homeschool community for some time. And then there's also a card game called Rummy Roots, and that's a, that's a fun one because rather than matching sets and runs, you match words that share Greek and Latin roots and thereby expanding the vocabulary. So those two are pretty useful. Memoria Press, I don't have a graphic for it, but uh, one of our friendly, friendly friend companies, uh, they have some advanced high school level Greek and Latin word roots book. Of course, if you can study Latin, that's good. I mean, if you can study Greek, that's amazing. But it's, um, it's very interesting because when you learn a root, it opens up a whole lot of words that you can not only read, but also spell as well. If you learn cron, C-H-R-O-N, and that that's the root for the meaning of time, and it comes from chronos, the, the titan, the Greek god titan of time, well, now you can learn very easily words like chronic, chronicle, synchronous, asynchronous, chronology. It, it opens up a whole family of maybe a dozen words that you can now understand and spell because of the root. And I would mention there is a fantastic movie. I think all parents and teachers, if you haven't seen it, watch it. I, this is one of the few movies I have probably watched half a dozen or more times. It was, I would say, the best movie of the 2000s. I'm not sure exactly when it came out, but it's Aquila and the Bee. Maybe, Julie, you can find a link for that or something. It is just an awesome movie. It's got a beautiful moral message, and the acting is quite good. And one of the interesting parts about that is the method by which this little girl, Aquila, the method by which her coach helps her discover the power of word roots. And then, of course, she goes on to compete in the National Spelling Bee Championships. And so it is It is a priceless movie. It is definitely one to to own if if you can, or at least watch every now and then. My, my kids all loved it, and we watched it every few years. Another interesting one from the same way, it's not quite as engaging, it's a documentary called Spellbound. And it's a documentary, as I said, about the 1999 National Spelling Bee Championships. And you see right in there the power of roots. The winning word is logoria. Logoria. Now, you've probably never heard this word. I've never heard this word. Nobody's heard this word. 
And yet here's a little 13-year-old who spells this word correctly because what do they get? They get the hints. They get to know the, the origin, right? Language of origin. They get a definition, and they also get to know what part of speech it is. Use it in a sentence, logoria, which in this case is from the Greek. It's a noun, and the definition is a pathological need. Uh, I'm sorry, pathological need to speak too much. It's talking too much. I like this word because I suffer from it. But <laughs> now, now you know how to spell the word, even though you've never seen it before. If you know that other pathological condition of putting out too much, you see, so you put the logo and the rhea, and there you go. And so the power of roots is just very tremendous. And I would say, you know, please, wherever you're teaching, you know, in a school, at home, tutoring, uh, plan on having some type of good Greek and Latin word roots program, because that, that covers a good 80% of the most important words in the English language. So. All right, so let's talk a little bit about our spelling program. It's called the Phonetic Zoo. This says a teacher guided, but honestly, it's it's actually more of a student self-directed. The, the teacher can administer it, but it's really something that the students can do on their own. And so we provide these materials, a set of audio CDs, or many people today prefer an MP3 download because the death of the disk is right around the corner. We have the flashcards that have an, an animal that corresponds with the group of letters that is described by what we would call a rule, jingle, or hint. So the words are organized into phonetic category, and so the kids can learn that. So lesson one, you can kind of see there, the jingle is AI says A in the middle of words, AY says A at the end of words, don't be fooled by suffixes. And so it then has words like Ray and Cayman, plain, words like that. Uh, it has a little set of zoo cards, which are just a little motivational device for kids to be able to get a new card when they pass off a lesson. It has a video of the spelling in the brain, very similar to what we're doing right now, and then a set of teacher's notes that give you all the specific details on how to implement the program with a little bit of troubleshooting. If you're not sure whether you would want to begin with level A, B, or C, uh, you can take our spelling placement test. There's a link right there on the side. Or, or you can just go to iew.com slash EIS for excellence in spelling. And you can uh, give your student the test, and it will say, OK, if you got this many right, go to the next level. If you didn't, stay at this level and help you figure out. And even if you get the wrong level and you buy you know, B and it's a little too challenging, you can always send it back and swap out. We have a 100% unconditional no time limit guarantee on everything that we sell. You will need some type of audio or MP3 player. And you'll want to have a notebook or just actually paper, any kind of paper, for the student to write the word. And so the way it works is you kind of present the category and say, here's the rule, here's the jingle, here's a couple animals that illustrate this rule. And then on the audio CD, they'll hear the word, hear it in a sentence, and hear the word again. Then, during that time, the student attempts to 
write out the word. I was a little distracted because this picture is my son Chris when he was, what, probably eight years old, nine years old. And now he's 20, and he doesn't look like that anymore, and he's all grown up. But this this picture brings back great nostalgia, so I apologize. Getting a little teary-eyed there. any case, he listens to the list, and he tries to write out on the paper the word. Then the next track on the CD is the correction. So there we spell the word one letter at a time, and the student will compare what he hears in his ear with what he's writing one letter at a time. And if he gets it right, he will leave it there or circle it, and if he gets it wrong, he will cross out the wrong and put in the right. So then he would see, okay, how many out of the 15 did he get right? The student takes the same little self-test, self-correct, every day, every day in a row, until he achieves 100% two days in a row. And so that is a mastery approach. You can't, you can't fail this program. Whether it takes you four days or 14 days or 20 days, it doesn't matter how long it takes. You eventually will get 100% twice in a row. So it's, it's a mastery approach where you, you'll learn it and then you'll know that you know that you know it. And this was, of course, Mrs. Ingham's approach. And Mrs. Ingham and her daughter, Shirley George, they taught in a public school classroom. But what they managed to do was figure out a system where all of the students could be working at their own pace, doing a little spelling quiz every day, studying and improving, studying and improving. And when they, when they passed that one test, they would go to the next list, and they'd work on that until it studied and improved, and they would work on that until they passed that. And so there was kind of a mastery approach, and everyone was able to make progress, and no one ever didn't pass the test. It just took some people a little longer than others. So that fits with our understanding of, of the need of different levels of frequency for different levels of children. Now, that's a little hard to do in a classroom, but Mrs. Ingham and Shirley did it for decades. It, of course, is easier for the one-room classroom or homeschool type of environment where everyone is used to working independently. But that's, that's the method. And then you go to the next card, the next rule, and you do the same thing. Every fifth lesson is a personal spelling lesson, and this is where you can collect up during, say, lessons one through four, words that they need to know, want to know, capitals of the state, errors from composition in their spelling, whatever they want. And so every fifth lesson is a personal spelling, and this needs to be administered by a person, you know, mom, dad, teacher, sibling, tutor, whatever. And then at the end of the system, there's a final exam where they get all of the words that they've learned for the entire thing, and if they've done it right, they should do pretty well on that. So Amy's asking a very interesting question here. So then the student should study the words they got wrong before taking the test again the next day. It's a very good question, Amy, but it does raise the question, do students know how to study? Have, have they been taught? What is a method of study that a student could use? Some kids are never taught how to study. And so what they think studying is, is you stare at it for a while. And if you stare at it long enough, well, then maybe you'll know it. But then, of course, you know, go back to visual input. That really doesn't work too well for 
the students who don't learn visually too well. So what I would say is, yes, you could study. And if you wanted to, you would do it with a student or coach them to do it with a friend and do that verbal auditory drill so that then the next time they write it out. But you could also just say taking the test is the study. It's not like you study for the test. I wouldn't even call it a test. I would just say you do the lesson by writing the words. You write as many as you know and you increase a little bit each day and so it gets easier and easier and then pretty soon you know all the words. So the, the lesson or the quote testy-like practice becomes the method of study. But you could supplement that with some verbal practice. That wouldn't be bad at all. And then next year, you can go up next level and reinforce the role jingle hint, the word categories, or you maybe understand all you need to, and you can go to a more advanced level of spelling. We actually have a program called Advanced Spelling and Vocabulary that actually doesn't organize words by phonetic grouping, assuming you've got that solid you can study words organized into to disciplines like legal and political vocabulary or medical vocabulary or artistic vocabulary, something like that. We do have, for the younger students, our PAL program. That's the Primary Arts of Language. And this phonetic farm you see is based on Sound City idea from Mrs. Ingham's Blended Soundsite Program of Learning. And so this helps to visually organize the groupings, not because it's visual input, but because it's an external representation of an internal organization that is occurring. So I see, let me check a couple questions. Question is, what about the kinesthetic learner? And I think you all had a conversation about sign language and using the sign alphabet to reinforce the auditory and visual. And I think that will be very helpful. I taught preschool for a few words, and I had one little guy, his eyes were rolling around in his head, and he couldn't follow two-step instructions. But he could spell a few dozen words, even when he was four years old, because we were able to use that sign language alphabet, A, B, C, and then you can say C, A, T, and, and that using your hand really seemed to reinforce. So definitely something to consider for students who need that extra element. Lori said, how do we increase the speed of moving repetitive concepts from working memory to long-term memory? I guess you are probably headed toward the answer to the question. I hope I answered the question. The, the real answer there is, is spaced repetition. So if you have too much repetition too short of a time, then you can get a degradation and a forgetfulness of the information. If you have too little repetition over a long period of time, then you kind of lose the power of the repetition. So getting the balance of the right repetition over the right period of time, that's the trick. And it's hard to give a categorical answer because all children are different. But experiment with some different things. And of course, adding in some motivational aspect, it will assist them with the intensity as well. And, oh, wow, listen to this. Lin Linda says that many years she took Mrs. Ingham's courses in the blended sound site, and she used the jingle rules to teach the kids. But for every rule, there's an exception. If I forget to say most of the time, the kids remind me or paired it with me. Wonderful. Wow, Linda, small world. What a, a blessing. You probably feel, as I do, that it was a tremendous privilege to meet 
Mrs. Ingham, who surely is one of the great people I have met in my life. So what a blessing. Thanks for sharing that. We have a couple questions about uh, dyslexic students. And I will say, yes, we have a very, very good record with dyslexic children. My son, who you saw in the picture, probably the most dyslexic child I've ever met. I mean, he didn't read a book till he was 12 years old. And so we did a lot of verbal and auditory spelling, and he did copy work. And, you know, he's not going to be the, the top speller in the world, but he functions very well. He did great in college, and actually tomorrow he's going to fly to India and with another a homeschool graduate who's already over there, go and uh, represent IEW and teach some demonstration classes and talk to teachers in schools in Mumbai about IEW. So he's doing great. He did well with the spelling program, yes. Let's see, question, if the student is given the list to read and study before the auditory lesson, they aren't just guessing how to spell. Well, you, you can do that, Katie. You can give them the list and say study, but the question I would say is, What's your method of study? If a child is just going to stare at the thing, that might work if they have good visual memory, certainly. But if they have you know, really good visual memory, you might not need a program like the Phonetic Zoo. If you're going to drill them a little bit verbally, yes, that could help. But one of the things about it is you take that first test. No one's expecting you to do well. I mean, good heaven, there's 15 words. If you get three right, hey, you got three right. Nobody expected you to get any right, so you're doing good. Next day, hey, you got five right. Wow, you're improving. Hey, next day, you got nine right. Wow, you're really improving. So the idea isn't that the test is a test in terms of you should know this. It's just the lesson, which is kind of a self-test, self-correct type of thing so that you can see improving. It is 8.38, and I do respect your time, and I know you've got spouses and children and chores and, and also things you want to do with your time. So I thank you so much for joining us, and I would say keep an eye out for our webinars in August. We'll be talking about how to help hybrid school teachers and parents. That would be your two- or three-day-a-week school. And then we will start our regular uh, webinar series on October 28th with Units 1 and 2. So keep tuned in to our webinars. And of course, we've got so many things that are helpful. The podcasts are exciting, and I've talked to a lot of people who've discovered those recently. There's also a whole archive of podcasts. We've got our webinars. We've got blogs. We've got a forum where you can all talk to each other. We've got our e-newsletter every month and our magnum opus magazine of student writing, which is also fun to share with your students. So again, thank you so much for joining me. And if we can wrap it up here, we'll tune out with our wonderful Respighi music. So God bless you all. And hopefully we'll see you on the great road and adventure of teaching. Thanks so much for joining us. If you enjoyed this episode and want to hear more, you can subscribe to this podcast in iTunes or Stitcher, or just visit us each week at IEW.com podcast. Until then, on behalf of Andrew Poudois and the team at IEW, I thank you for the privilege of allowing us to partner with you on this educational journey toward better listening, speaking, reading, writing, and thinking.